This is uh, part three in a series that I've entitled Surprised by Grace. We are making our way through the short book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is an Old Testament book. Uh, it tells the story of a runaway prophet. God calls this uh, prophet to go to the enemy city of Nineveh, and he decides to run in the opposite direction. Um, if you grew up in church, even if you didn't grow up in church, the story of Jonah is pretty familiar. Most people remember it as a fish-swallowing man story, but there's so much more here than that, as we've noticed the last two weeks. Um, and so we're going to be spending the next handful of weeks going through Jonah. This is part three, and this morning I want to read from Jonah chapter one, beginning in verse four, and reading down through verse 10. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Let's pray together. God, we need you this morning to communicate your truth to our hearts. I can stand up here and I can talk and I can even share insights that you've given me, but only you can set us free. Only you can address the heart. And since the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart, we need you to speak loudly and clearly and compellingly to those very parts of us that need to hear you the most. And so we pray that you would be the primary preacher this morning, that it would be your voice that we hear. And so as we do each week, we pray with one voice, come thou fount of every blessing and tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been looking at the well-known story of Jonah. It's a short book, only four chapters. But what we've seen so far is that we are a lot more like Jonah than we may initially think. In fact, in all of the ways that Jonah is exposed, we're exposed. Uh, the reason why Jonah runs from God is the same reason we run from God. Jonah runs from God because he doesn't trust God. He doesn't like or agree with what God has called him to do, so he goes in the opposite direction. 
And he does so because he thinks that running away from God will make him free. Well, our run, we run from God too. We run from God more often and oftentimes with more vigor and passion than we realize. And while our running may seem more subtle than Jonah's, you know, we're not physically running down to a port and getting on a ship and trying to physically go in the opposite direction that God has called us to go, but our running is just as explicit as Jonah's running. For instance, when God tells us to forgive someone who has really hurt us or wronged us, when he tells us to love our enemies, when when he tells us to bless those who curse us and to pray for those who persecute us, when he tells us to be kind and tender-hearted to those who are hard-hearted to us, when he tells us to turn the other cheek when we are mistreated every time, when he tells us those things, like Jonah, we run. When God tells us to never seek revenge to never hold grudges, to never gossip, to never be unforgiving, to never be greedy, to never be jealous, to never lust, to never be prideful, to always be unselfish, to always give what we have to those in need, and so on. Like Jonah, we run for Tarshish. Every time we fail to love God with all of our heart, and all of our soul, and all of our strength, and all of our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're running from God's call, just like Jonah. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, when the apostle Paul says, whether you eat, or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. There are no back doors there. It's whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Changing diapers, going to work, whatever the case may be, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Every time we fail to do that for just one second, we're running from God just like Jonah. Every time we fail to be perfect, the way our Father in heaven is perfect, we're fleeing from God like Jonah. So make no mistake about it, Jonah's runaway posture is our posture too. Okay, every time we sin, whether in thought, word, or deed, whether it's doing something we shouldn't do or failing to do something we should do, we're telling God, I don't like your way. I'm choosing my way. I don't like your plan. I'm choosing my plan. I don't like your direction. I'm going to be self-directed every time. What we're really saying in those moments is, I don't want you to be my God. I want to be my own God every time. That's what sin is. And that's the way the Bible describes sin. We see that first and foremost In Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed and said, now you can have whatever you want and eat whatever you want. Just you can't eat anything from that tree. And of course, the serpent comes around to tempt Adam and Eve and says, did God tell you that you can't eat anything in this garden? Notice how he twists God's words. Okay, that's not what God said. God said, you can have whatever you want. You just can't eat from this tree. 
Well, the serpent comes around and says, did God really say, you know, he's casting doubt on who God is, the character of God? Is he really trustworthy? Can you really bank on what God has told you to do? And he plants these seeds of doubt. And they said, no, he said we could have whatever we want. We just can't eat from that tree. And the serpent said, you want to know why God said you can't eat from that tree? Because he knows that the moment you do, you will be like him. And God is this insecure divine who needs to be needed. And the last thing he wants is for you to exercise your independence and be your own God. But why depend on God when you can be your own God? And of course, that was too good of a deal to pass up. And Adam and Eve, perfectly representing every single one of us, meaning we would have all done the exact same thing had we been in that same spot, um, chose to be their own God. And we have been doing that since then. That is our primary struggle. Theologians call it original sin. Um, But, you know, um, being our own God, as it did with Adam and Eve, may seem liberating at first. You know, you can be like God. But you soon realize that this makes life very heavy and very hard. Being God is just too big of a job for us. Martin Luther called this the life of an unhappy God. It's unhappy because now all of the stability and love and meaning and worth that we long for, we have to go out and get for ourselves. Now the onus is on us to make life worth living. The onus is on us to go out and secure the love that our hearts crave. The onus is on us to go out and achieve acceptance and achieve approval and those sorts of things. But think about this. When you feel disappointed with life, okay, when you can't overcome your bad habits, uh, when life seems paralyzing for one reason or another, when, when you uh, are debilitated by the guilt of failure, when you want to be loved but you're still single, when you hit midlife and realize you aren't where you thought you'd be, when you feel rejected by someone whose acceptance you crave, when you are contemplating mess-ups that you can't change, when you can't seem to get over the fact that he left you, and so on and so forth. Does being your own God bring you comfort? See, it's in those moments when we, when we realize maybe being our own God isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Maybe sort of being the, the captain of my own ship isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Self-dependence, and I've said this week in and week out uh, in this series, that self-dependence is not freedom. Okay, now that's what the world and all too often the church is trying to sell you. Self-reliance, self-dependence, autonomy. Uh, They may not say things like, you can be like God, but that's what's insinuated, that's what's implied, that's what's being sold. Um, They're doing everything they can to communicate to you that self-dependence, self-reliance is the essence of freedom. That the less you have to depend on anything or anybody, the more free you will be. But the Bible says something different. It says that self-dependence, that self-reliance is not freedom, it's slavery. Being our own God is not a life of rest, okay? It's a life of pure exhaustion, You know that to be true. What Jonah needs and what we need 
is to be rescued from ourselves. We need to be set free from our slavery to self. So, in this passage, God goes after Jonah. Not because God needs Jonah, but because Jonah needs God and doesn't even know it. He thinks that running from God will make him free. God knows that running from God will make him a slave, so he goes after him. Not because God needed him. I said this last week, and I said this the week before. God pursues Jonah with great vigor. Jonah is God's mission. It's not the Ninevites. It's Jonah. Jonah is God's mission, and so God pursues Jonah with vigor and with passion. Um, Not because there's no one else that God can find to go to Nineveh for him. He could have sent a tree, a talking tree, if he wanted to, okay? He could have sent anything or anybody, okay? He could have put Jonah in a trance and made him into a robot for a period of time, sent him there, say what he needed, wanted Jonah to say, and then bring him back. I mean, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He's all-powerful. He doesn't need us. He comes after us, just like he came after Jonah, went after Jonah, because we need him, not because he needs us. So God goes after Jonah. Well, this is where the storm comes into play, okay? God goes after Jonah in the form of a storm. Verse four tells us that God hurled a great wind upon the sea, which produced a mighty tempest. Okay, this is no ordinary squall. It's so intense that it threatens to capsize the ship and it causes all of these seasoned sailors, these mighty mariners, to be scared to death. They're terrified. I mean, I'm sure these guys were used to storms. I mean, this is what they did for a living. They were used to rough waters. They were used to, they were used to wind. They were used to waves. They were used to rain and storms. But this is, a, this is like level 11 stuff, okay? Um, I mean, this really is a whole nother level, and you can see that not only by the words that verse 4 says, um, hurled a great wind, which produced a mighty tempest. Those words are intended to be communicating that this is no, this is a big deal. It's a big storm. This is like, you know, a hurricane-type storm. Um, But their response, the sailors' response to the storm is that they're terrified. They're scared to death, which tells you something. These guys are are used to the water, and for a storm to make them this scared tells you it was no sun shower. This was a serious, life-threatening storm. Um, In fact, the sailors were so scared that they tried whatever they could to make it go away. They threw cargo overboard. They tried crying out to their own gods. I mean, they were desperate. They were trying everything, everything. Well, last week, I said that running from God is always dangerous, Always. It always leads downward. We looked at verse uh, three through five, which says that Jonah went down to Joppa to find the ship. He went down below deck and he laid down and fell into a deep sleep. That Jonah's running from God ultimately leads him down into the sea and down into the belly of the fish, into the place of death itself. Flight from God always leads downward and it always leads to dark places. Always. It's always dangerous. But running from God is not just dangerous to the one running. It takes other people down too. I mean, that's clear here. It's not just Jonah who's in danger. 
because he's running. The, the sailors are in danger because Jonah's running. You see, sin corrupts things, it breaks things, it separates things, it toxifies things, it twists things out of shape, it, it unravels the fabric of our lives and, and the lives of other people. In this sense, every individual act of sin has communal consequences. Everyone. This is why when one person sins, every person suffers. Um, I mean, I, I, uh, I know this personally in some very tangible ways in my life, and I'm sure you do too. But there have been times when I have been running from God and I have really made a mess of things, and it doesn't just affect me. It affects the people around me. It, uh, it affects the people that I love the most. My flight from God, daily as it is, doesn't just hurt me. It hurts other people. Think about in the context of a disagreement, a fight, an argument with your spouse, for instance. There are uh, certain ways to fight, you know, certain ways to argue where, um, you know, you, you sort of maintain the other person's dignity. You're still treating them like a human being, even though you may be disagreeing, even though you may be fighting. Well, when all of that's disregarded, when the when uh, the other person you're fighting with who is stamped with the image of God is being treated by you as something less than human or if you're, being, if you're on the receiving end of treatment that is less than human, uh, it's not just hurting you. When you're running from God in that moment, it's not just hurting you, it's hurting your spouse and vice versa. I mean, we could give a thousand illustrations of this. We know this to be true, that every individual act of sin has communal repercussions, uh, that when... One person sins, every person suffers. In fact, when we disregard God and choose to be our own God, to do our own thing and to make our own way, the people you love the most actually suffer the most. Okay, think about this. Uh, moms, dads, for instance, I was thinking about this as it pertains to myself. Um, you know, uh, being a control freak is not a good thing. Okay, I don't know if the people in your life have told you this, um, but it's not a good thing. And being a control freak, wanting to control everything is actually an expression of unbelief. In those moments when I'm trying to control things and I'm trying to ensure that certain outcomes turn out to be a certain way because that will make me feel safe and secure and more important and those sorts of things. When I'm trying to control things, what I'm saying in those moments is I don't trust that you have my best interests in heart, God, so I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. I don't trust that you're in control, so I need to take control, okay? Uh, well, when that happens, let's say you're a mom or you're a dad, and you're kind of a control freak because you need your family to be a certain way. You need your kids to turn out a certain way. You need your husband or your wife to be a certain way. And so you're constantly trying to control things and constantly trying to ensure that things turn out a certain way, whatever. How does that make everybody feel? In that moment, you're running from God, Okay, and every not you're not the only one that's suffering from your flight. Everybody else is too. So we see that so clearly in this story. Jonah's flight from God doesn't just put him in danger. I mean, these sailors are in danger also. Their lives are at risk because of Jonah's flight. Um, the word hurled in verse four is often used in the Bible for throwing a weapon like a spear or something. Okay, And that's intended to communicate a very vivid picture that God is coming after Jonah with battle-like force. 
Which is why when we first read about the storm, we think it's God's punishment to Jonah for his disobedience. I mean, that makes sense, you know? Makes sense to read it that way. Um, God's mad at Jonah for running, and this storm is retribution from God. This storm, just by the very fierceness of it, seems to reflect God's anger. There's something about the violence of this storm, uh, the threatening nature of this storm. There's something about the fierceness of this storm that kind of seems to reflect, on first reading, um, God's anger, that this is retribution from God. And God's coming after Jonah to give him a big God-like spanking for running, okay? Well, this is what many Christians think God is like that God comes after us in anger to pay us back for our sin. When you suffer, some of you think, okay, God, I, I, God, you're, I know you're beating me up now because I, I blew it, and that's okay, I deserve it. Okay, just keep beating me. I, I deserve the beating because I blew it. Um, just to clarify, uh, no, okay? Jesus died for your sin. He was punished in your place. God is not making you pay him back. We don't believe in karma. We don't believe in penance. We believe in Jesus, which is very different. And who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us uh, shapes what we think about God and how God is like and who God is. Um, so this storm is not divine punishment fueled by God's anger. It's divine intervention fueled by God's affection. That's what this storm is. God comes after Jonah in this storm for the same reason he comes after us, to set us free. I said last week, everything God is doing in your life, whatever it may be, everything God is doing in your life, he's doing to set you free. That's what Jesus said he came to do. In Luke chapter four, he says, I've come, Jesus gives us his personal mission statement in Luke chapter four. And he says, I've come to set the captives free, to liberate the oppressed, to give sight to the blind. I have come to be the great liberator. That's who I've, that's what I've come to do. Everything God is doing in your life, especially in those places that seem like God is killing you, he's actually in one sense making you alive. He's setting you free from things that you don't even know you're enslaved to. I was talking to a friend this week who's going through a rough patch in his life. Um, and I, he was kind of giving me the lowdown on the circumstances that he's facing. Uh, and we were talking about this. We were talking about how so often pain and loss and suffering and consequences are God's way of setting us free from things we didn't even know we were in bondage to that we were blind to when Jesus says, I've come to give sight to the blind. That's what he's talking about. He's coming to set us free from things that we don't even know we need to be set free from. Um, that's what storms tend to do. Storms tend to disrupt things, expose things. You know that when we were, Stacey and I were living in Fort Myers uh, and Hurricane Irma came through, direct hit. Okay, direct hit on Fort Myers, like two days after we arrived. Okay, should have told me something. The funny part of that story is that we had just left Houston, where we had been living for the last year, and Hurricane 
Harvey, okay, uh, was like pummeling Houston, okay? So much so that we had to postpone our move to Fort Myers by like five days because we couldn't get out of Houston. At which point my younger brother, I still have his text, texts me in his stupidly hilarious way. I have two younger brothers and they're both funny, but this one that I'm speaking of is just ridiculous. Uh, and he said, dear Tutu, okay, that's what my siblings called me when I was small and that's what my grandkids call me, by the way. Uh, said, dear Tutu, clearly God is punishing the world for your sin, so why don't you do yourself and all of Houston a favor and go throw yourself into the ocean? Uh, so <laughs> anyway, um, which I laughed at until we finally got out of Houston. We take the three-day drive and make it to Fort Myers. We get to Fort Myers. The day we arrive, which was Labor Day of 2017, right? Uh, the notification comes on that Hurricane Irma is bearing down right on the southwest coast of Florida. I'm like, maybe Aram, my brother, has a point. <laughs> maybe God really is trying to get my attention in some way and that a lot of people are suffering because of me. Maybe I should throw myself into the ocean and just hope that a big fish swallows me. Um, but while we were living in Fort Myers and Irma came through, and I mean, it was, I've only lived in one other place, Fort Lauderdale, when Wilma came through in 2005 or six, and it was a direct hit uh, and it disrupted things. But when Fort Myers, when Irma came, I mean, there were, if you've ever been on the southwest coast of Florida, there are these massive, I don't even know what kind of trees they are, but they're massive. I mean, it looks like they've been there for 65 billion years, okay? Um, and some of these trees were uprooted. I mean, historic trees were uprooted. And the roots of these things, which no human eye had ever seen, were now exposed for the whole world to see. And I'm talking, some of these roots were like 30, 40 yards long. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was a real spectacle. Storms, especially violent ones, tend to disrupt things, expose things, show what's really underneath the surface. Okay, that's what this storm is doing. That's what storms do in our lives. That's what this storm is doing in Jonah's life. It's exposing him. It's exposing the sailors also. I mean, look at their reaction. Not only are they scared to death, but they're, they're crying out to their own gods. I mean, they're, 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 I mean, they're grasping after anything they can, and they're discovering that their gods, whoever they may be, uh, can't do anything about this storm. Uh, they're, you know, they're, their religions, their religious commitments are being exposed as being false and, and futile. Um, so um, storms have a, have a way of showing us what's really inside, what's really down deep. Um, when we sin, God will send storms. When we run, God will send storms, usually in the form of some kind of consequence. But each storm God sends is a merciful intrusion designed to wake us up. I mean, Jonah's sound asleep. Sound asleep. How is this guy? I don't, I don't know if he took Advil PM. I don't know if he took, I don't know. I mean, I can only imagine that this ship, for these sailors to be as scared as they were, this ship is, uh, I mean, it's, you know, going up and down. I mean, it's, being, it's threatening to, to be uh, disabled and to capsize, and he's sound asleep. This storm uh, is, I mean, he's 
dead asleep, clueless as to what's going on. And God uses the fear of these mariners to wake Jonah up. I mean, every time God sends a storm into our lives, it's not because he's angry and he's coming to punish us. It's because he loves us and he knows we need intervention. He knows we need him, even if we don't think we do. Disruptive storms, they just, they uncover what we're actually building our lives on. We may say, oh, we build our lives on God and God's love for us. We can say that. But in reality, what storms tend to do is uncover what we're really building our life on, functionally. Um, they have a way of uncovering what we're actually building our lives on, what we're enslaved to, what we're actually relying on to give our lives meaning and purpose. You see, you don't, you and I typically don't know what we're depending on functionally to make life worth living until that thing or that person is lost or threatened. I mean, this was me in 2015. I mean, me in spades in 2015. I was preaching the same message that I preach now, okay? I was preaching then. And yet, my entire world came crashing down as a result of my own sin and selfishness, and I realized as I was losing everything just how much of my own sense of worth and security uh, was anchored in things smaller than God's love and smaller than Jesus. I was preaching about things like, don't build your life on anything smaller than Jesus. While I was building my life, unbeknownst to me, on a thousand things infinitely smaller than Jesus. It took a massive disruption, a massive storm to show me that stuff, to expose the idolatry of my own heart. Uh, so you typically don't know what you're depending on to make life worth living until it's gone. Well, God wants to free us from ourselves, and there's nothing better than strong winds and high waves to expose the fact that our lives need to be anchored in deeper water than our own abilities, our own strength, our own resources, and so on. As I said last week, God is in the business of relentlessly pursuing rebels like us. And he comes after us not to angrily strip away our freedom, but to affectionately strip away our slavery to self so that we will be truly free. Everything God is doing in your life, as I said, he's doing for one reason, for one reason, to set you free, everything. The painful stuff, those places where it feels like your skin is being ripped off your bones, those places that seem so daunting and so hopeless and you just can't, you can't imagine being able to go on, to continue living your life without this thing, without this dream, without this person, without whatever, fill in the blank. And oftentimes, suffering is God's way of prying our hands open from things we've been holding on to more tightly than him. And as a result, we become a slave to that thing. We're gonna talk about idolatry in two weeks because Jonah talks about idolatry from the belly of the fish when he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. He's saying something profound there. We're gonna talk about idolatry and the fact that the human heart is an idol-making factory. We turn good gifts of God into ultimate sources of meaning and purpose and all of those sorts of things um, and how enslaving that can be. But God comes after you, as I said, 
Not because God needs you. God comes after me, not because he needs me, but because we need him. Um, let me just conclude with this. I, I've been a part of two interventions in my life. In both cases, someone that I loved was spiraling out of control and desperately needed help that they didn't think that they needed. Now, if you've ever been a part of something like this, you know this to be true, that trying to persuade someone they need help when they don't think they do is a very difficult task, extremely difficult. Um, something disruptive needs to happen in order for them to be persuaded that the situation is beyond their control, that they're uh, personally powerless to fix whatever the problem is. That's what this storm did for Jonah. This divine intervention was uh, massively disruptive. It's, it's what this storm did for Jonah, and that's what Jesus does for us. You know, uh, if you're gonna look for Jesus in this story, look no further than the storm. I mean, Jesus is God's ultimate intervention. Jesus is the ultimate storm. The arrival of Jesus massively disrupts and confronts our presumption that we can make it on our own. You ever think about that? I talked about this uh, around Christmas time. We love Christmas. We celebrate Christmas. We look forward to Christmas. Um, it's the hot, hot, happiest time of the year. And all too often, we, we fail to uh, stop for a moment and think why Christmas was even necessary in the first place. I mean, think about it. Uh, God coming in the person of Jesus is the ultimate divine intervention. And, and it was so necessary that God had to come himself. Can we think, okay, is this not a bit of a divine overreaction? I know I'm not perfect and this world's not perfect, but just give us some guidance, some timeless principles that we can follow um, and you know that we can fix this on our own, God. That exposes the fact that we believe the problem is a lot smaller than it actually is. In order for God to come himself, the very fact that God had to come himself shows that the problem is much bigger than anything we can fix, anything we can control. Um, it confronts and disrupts our presumption that we can fix things, that we can make it on our own, that we can be my, our own God. Um, I mean, the fact that God had to come should clue us into how serious the situation is, how needy and enslaved we truly are. In sending Jesus, the ultimate storm, God proved that he is willing to pay the ultimate price to rescue fugitives of freedom like you and me. When we foolishly run from God, the, the good shepherd comes after us. He picks us up. He puts us over his shoulders and he carries us home every time. There's no limit to God's forgiveness. Jesus himself says that to Peter when Peter says, hey, listen, um, when can I stop forgiving this guy? I know it's important to forgive. I know that I should forgive. But I mean, Jesus, let's be honest here. Every man has his ceiling. I think I've reached mine with this guy, so when can I stop? And Jesus says, uh, never, ever. God's, and in saying that, he's saying, he's telling us something about the way God forgives, that God's forgiveness is infinite. 
There are no limits to God's forgiveness. He comes when we foolishly run from God. God would be within his rights to say, you don't want to be around me? You don't want to do what I say? You don't want to follow my lead? You don't want me to be God in your life? Fine, go. Just go and I'll, you go this way, I'll go that way. Have a nice life. But God comes after us. Now he does, as I said last week, he lets us go for a time so that we'll know what life without God feels like. And that's often what God uses to bring us back. Um, But when we foolishly run from God, he comes after us. He picks us up. He puts us over his shoulders. He carries us home every time. He meets our guilt with his grace and our failures with his forgiveness every time. Every time. His pursuant love is mugging in nature. Mugging in nature. So no matter where you go, how far you run, how stubborn your roaming may be, he will never, ever stop coming for you with infinite amounts of gritty grace and forceful forgiveness. And here's the best part. Your running doesn't annoy him. Your running doesn't throw him off. Your running doesn't thwart his plan. Um, Your running, as much pain as it will bring to you, and to the people in your life, your running gives God an opportunity to do what he loves to do, which is to find you, to come after you. It is, in fact, his joy to come after you, his joy. He's not coming after you, huffing and puffing and going, my gosh, when is this idiot gonna learn? (laughs) He comes after us, and he picks us up, and he puts us over his shoulder, and he carries us home every time. We run daily, he comes after us daily. Let's pray together.